co-host Emma Suzuki with Ladin Suleiman, and today we have with us Sophia McLennan, a professor of international affairs and comparative literature here at Penn State. She's an accomplished writer on the topic of political satire, as well as the founding director of the Center for Global Studies. Today we discussed with her the meaning and importance of political satire, as well as how her upbringing and culture background has influenced her interests today. Please join me in welcoming Sophia McLennan. All right. So, hello and welcome, Sophia McLennan, to the Paterno Fellows podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, um, we know that you are a very accomplished person, having experience teaching in many countries across the world, writing books, and also teaching here at Penn State University classes like human rights culture, culture and globalization, media studies, and so much more. Um, Could you tell me basically how this all started and what your educational journey was like? (laughs) It's a... It's a really good question, but it's also a really strange question because it assumes that there was a logic to, uh, you know, getting me where I am today. I find that when I get asked this, I I can find moments from my childhood and college that could be plot points and a narrative that makes a good story. Um, But I think if I were to be perfectly honest, especially with young people who might be listening, I'd say, you know, sometimes your life takes turns you didn't anticipate. I think when I interact with my friends from college today, almost all of them are surprised I'm a professor. (laughs) So they didn't see that coming as my future career trajectory. Um, I certainly had a really important role model in my grandfather, Henry Hope, who was a very well, uh, uh, very accomplished uh, arts uh, art historian uh, at Indiana University. So in him, I think I did have a very strong role model, especially one that would then have it make sense for me to want to be at a major public institution. Both my grandfather and I had degrees from Harvard, for example, Um, But at the end of the day, we wanted to dedicate ourselves to uh, public institutions. Uh, There's another part of my story that comes together in college that I think is relevant today. And that is that when I was at Harvard as an undergrad, I was on the Harvard Lampoon, which is one of the country's oldest satirical uh, college magazines. And I do believe that time on the Harvard Lampoon, which coincided, for example, with Conan O'Brien being on the staff, and the number of folks that went off to make careers in satire that the fact that I work on satire and politics today sort of um, makes a a good bit of sense. Um, I'm not sure if that's enough of an answer for you or if you want to jump in. Yeah, no, that is a great answer. Um, Yeah, because I was going to ask about your interest in political satire, basically, where that all stemmed from. And it sounds like the environment that you grew up in basically sort of um, shaped this in your interests and now in your profession. Um, yeah, and you also published a lot of books and you also have a column that you write for Salon.com. Um, and there's this one book that I saw on your list called Colbert's America, Satire and Democracy. And I thought this was very interesting 
um, because I love Stephen Colbert. Could you just tell me a little bit more about this book in particular? Well, it's a good question because it is a book that sort of marks a fork in my academic trajectory. Because prior to that, a lot of what sort of grounded me as a scholar was asking questions about how culture responded to crisis through things like the writing of exiles or the poetry of people who had been tortured or uh, you know, ways in which films were helping to address major human rights catastrophes. And so a lot of the work that I did was super depressing. I was reading materials that were really written in and from places of pain, but with the goal of you know, elevating a human rights agenda at some, at some level. And I have a really stark memory of the day that I came across Stephen Colbert's uh, White House Correspondents Association dinner uh, uh, talk um, in front of George W. Bush. And I remember watching that and I thought, wow, this guy is making claims uh, that are significant and important for the United States to hear at a time, for example, when you might recall there were allegations of torture um, in the U.S. military and a number of the human rights issues that I was used to working on. But what I saw in Colbert was another way to bring attention to these issues, one which was creative and clever, but also not grounded in the kind of depressing and dark stuff I tended to work on. And I think that was a real pivot moment for me, because from there, I, I really have, I think I've got um, three, three books. Yeah, maybe three books on. No, well, yeah, three books that I've published and one that is um, finished and hopefully we'll have a publisher soon. So right, four books on satire and its role in advancing uh, you know, a progressive political goals, uh, civic engagement, um, democrat, you know, democracy in general. So I really do think you're right to look at that book as an interesting moment for me. Yeah, no, that is really interesting, specifically because, yeah, I do love Stephen Colbert, and I did not know too much about political satire before reading more about your biography, basically. Um, so, when did this interest actually start to develop? Do you remember any specific times, specific moments? Well, like I said, I mean, obviously my time on the Lampoon as a satirical magazine was really pivotal, but I did grow up in a family that was pretty sarcastic and sarcasm and satire are, you know, like allies. So certain people, I think, uh, find sarcasm and satire to be uh, entertaining and meaningful. Other people, as you, I'm sure you know, don't. <laughs> so that's, it's not universal. Although it is culturally universal that satire shows up everywhere, but not everybody likes it in each culture. Uh, I think, again, if, if you consider that at some level, my training was about speaking truth to power and, and had been done, again, in these sort of much heavier spaces, Satire is also about speaking truth to power. But in the case of satire, it does it through irony. So um, where the, say, poet 
who's trying to express the anguish of torture might be using really creative aesthetic ways to elicit that experience. Uh, the satirist also plays with language and representation, but does it in a way that tends to be sort of a more positive cognitive experience for the audience. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that that is something I was inclined to enjoy. I just hadn't really put it at the center of my work. And then uh, Colbert, I believe, is without question one of the United States' most important satirical comedians of all time, uh, you know, with all due respect to folks like Ben Franklin. Uh, so, you know, having my first book give me a chance to really tell the story of why Colbert's work was so uh, powerful was a, you know, sort of useful exercise for me as a scholar to really, uh, you know, dig into that story and then figure out where to go next. I definitely see the uh, very important role that satire and comedy more generally has in, you know, undermining power when it needs to be. Um, but I wanted to move a little bit more into your background. Um, as you mentioned, you are the granddaughter of an art historian, um, but also the daughter of an Afghan economist. Um, and it also says here that you were raised by a strong and sassy mother who taught her children that rules were made to be broken and to question authority. So kind of two things I want to, I want to go off from there. Um, so one, how does, um, uh, being the daughter of an Afghan economist, how does that, how has that affected you as a person and in your professional life? And what do you think are the implications of having a strong mother figure who gave you these sort of um, imperatives? Um, how does that influence your work today? Well, these are really great questions. Uh, they're very different answers in a way. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, Afghanistan is uh, certainly a complicated uh, source of heritage um, for someone like me living in the United States. It's been extremely difficult. Um, the day of the 9-11 attacks, I had an extremely unusual experience because I was having a miscarriage. And went to my doctor and was, you know, as you might imagine, um, pretty un unhappy. And, of course, the attacks had happened that morning. At that time, you know, it wasn't really well known, you know, who exactly was behind it. Although there was a lot of speculation that it was connected to al-Qaeda operating out of Afghanistan. And so the nurse that was taking my vitals went on this huge rant about how she just hoped the U.S. would bomb everyone in Afghanistan to oblivion. And so I've spent, you know, what, over 20 years um, having a really complicated space that I live in where it's really common for me. Um, uh, your listeners might not be familiar, but I don't really visibly look like I'm half Afghan. Um, so I'm in that strange place where I pass. And so it means I hear things that I'm not supposed to hear and they're difficult. And I do write about Afghanistan, um, uh, as somebody who works on, you know, sort of, uh, global politics. 
so yes, I mean, at, at that level, I think, again, it, it, it sort of goes to my heart as a scholar that our job is, in fact, to keep the conversation organized around the truth and to try to teach people how to have nuance and diversity in their views. But that diversity, of course, needs to come from evidence. Um, I think Afghanistan is still uh, a place very few people understand as evidenced by what's recently happened with the U.S. withdrawal. And um, when you don't understand a place yet you send uh, aid and weapons, uh, it's not surprising when things don't work out. So I, I do think um, that's been a very powerful uh, part of my sort of formation as a scholar. My mom is a really different kind of story because she was a working mom. She was, as I said, she really did always say rules were made to be broken, which of course never went well for her when my brother or I didn't want to follow one of her rules. Um, but uh, it is valuable, I think, to be raised in a home where your parents open those kinds of things up and say, let's discuss stuff, let's debate it. Because I grew up in a house where uh, you could make a case. Uh, let's say, you know, I maybe wanted more allowance. I was, I was allowed to make a case. I had to make an argument for it. So I, I really was raised, and maybe this came, again, from my mother's own being raised by an academic, and a place where I was taught a fairly sophisticated and ongoing sense of sort of debate and dialogue. And then I do think having a very strong mom who was a successful professional was very valuable to me as a an academic mom. I I have this. I still remember she she died about four years ago. But I um I would often talk to her and say, "Oh man, mom, I you know I'm overwhelmed. I'm exhausted. I can't keep up with everything. And you know the kids need this, and I need to do this for work." And then she'd say, "Well, just get more takeout." <laughs> Which is great because we we actually live in an era of parenting that was different from the kind of parenting my mom did, where um, a lot of my say peers as um, academic moms, I think, feel uh, a lot of guilt over whether or not they're doing this or that for their kids. Um, some of which is, you know, did you locally source the muffins you brought to school and grow the grains in your backyard, kind of stuff? And my mom was always like, just go to the grocery store and buy something. <laughs> Stop making this so hard. Right. So she was very helpful. Right. I, I really want to like emphasize this point because I feel like my father also instilled in me like this sense of, you know, asking me what I want, why I want, and sort of making this argument uh, to convince him as it were uh, for him to, you know, do what it is that I wanted him to do for me. Um, and I do think that sort of, that influenced me in a lot of ways um, in the way that I engage in debate um, and dialogue these days. Do you, how, how important, how important do you think the role is of parents um, for, for um, young people to grow up um, with strong views and the ability to debate and engage in dialogue uh, rather than to shut down and retreat from confrontation in the public space? Well, you know, that's sort of the question of the day. Um, as I'm sure, you know, your listeners uh, know, we're in a moment of such political division that it's really uncommon to sort of have your ideas questioned in a significant way. 
But when I grew up, um, you know, it was common that we would get into these debates. And the important thing was that you would get into the debate, but you would do it in a way that was civil. And uh, maybe you learned something in the process. And uh, it didn't mean that you didn't like the person the next day if they, you know, didn't agree with you. Um, and so I think, you know, what you're describing as the way you were raised is valuable too. Um, I don't like to speculate on what's happening in people's homes. And, and I don't really want to say that I do or don't know how people, you know, how other parents are raising their kids. But I can see in my students, depending on the context that I'm teaching in, that some of my students really are unfamiliar with, say, what it means to have a debate where you and I might disagree, but we don't just get to make stuff up. And um, I often will have students where I say, all right, you know, your job is to make this argument. And they'll say, so it's just what I believe, right? And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, those aren't the same things. And so I do think we've lost this sort of fine tuning where, yes, let's say, you say capital punishment is good and I say it's not good, but we don't just say it and then, you know, arm wrestle. We say it, you make your argument for why you support it. And I make my argument for why I do not. And the arguments derive from a groundwork of evidence. And, you know, I always try to teach my students that there's uh, legitimate ways to have opposing views on a number of topics. But um, I do think um, we've lost a bit of that art, and I suspect some of that may be because of what's happening at home. But I, again, I don't want to speculate that on that. No, I mean, I actually completely agree. I, the way I was raised specifically by my mother, um, very similar in that she told me to be very open-minded. Um, and I also wanted to sort of relate to you in that um, I mean, I, my mom was born and raised in Japan, and you sort of hear a lot of stuff about that culture that you sort of grew up in at home that not a lot of people are aware of, like, what they're saying and, like, um, like exactly how they're trying to, like, portray that culture that they've never really experienced before. Um, and as somebody who doesn't really look Japanese, um, I actually wanted to ask you, how do you um, sort of approach those people who make assumptions about your culture and have that sort of discussion with them in a civil way? Yeah, you know, sometimes, I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, Anna, right? But sometimes this stuff is just tiring, right? I mean, you don't always want to do it. I agree. Um, and uh, I like to teach my students that you don't always have to. In fact, uh, you get to just be a person. You don't have to be a Japanese person or a Japanese American person or whatever it is that might, you know, sort of qualify you. Sometimes you just get to say, you know, I don't feel like representing today. Um, and I think it's important that we do that. And I think it's important that we get to be in spaces where, you know, we are what we are, but we're not sort of reminding people of the qualifications that, um, or the nuances, right, to our identity. I think identity as a marker is significant, of course, 
but it's, it's okay to not have to get into it, right? And so I think we need to also remind ourselves that that's true. Now, that said, um, I do think I have uh, the unusual experience of uh, being, as my friends like to call it, a half-gan, <laughs> so that um, I happen to be connected to, I think, one of the world's most misunderstood cultures. And I, you know, if you think of it, it, one of the ways I like to illustrate it to people is that when the United States first went into Afghanistan after the 9-11 attacks, they couldn't tell whether they were on a revenge mission or humanitarian one, which right there tells you how confused the U.S. was in the mission. And it's not surprising that the U.S. public got confused. So are Afghans uh, sort of victims you need to rescue or are they terrorist threats that you need to, you know, assassinate? It's, if you can't figure that one out, then it flows and becomes clear that part of the problem is that people were being very unsophisticated about identifying, yes, there are elements in Afghanistan that are posing a significant security threat to the United States. That is not the whole country. So when the U.S. decided to go to war with Afghanistan, that confused the whole system, right? Um, so I do feel, uh, again, an obligation to step up, as I'm sure you, you might, um, when you feel like your culture is being radically misunderstood. Uh, but, you know, there's a place at which I think um, I could be defending Japan and you could defend Afghanistan, right? I don't think you have to have the sort of DNA to have the legitimacy to want to make those arguments. That's very true. I've never actually thought of it in that way. Um... Yeah, thank you so much for the advice. Um, so now I kind of want to switch gears and talk a little bit about the Center for Global Studies you have here at Penn State. Could you just summarize basically what the mission or the goal is for this um, organization? Yeah, so the Center for Global Studies has is um, about 12 years old, and it, uh, from its inception, had uh, support from Title VI funds that are come out of the Department of Education. And at some level, some of what we do is related directly to the mandate that comes with the grants from the Department of Ed. Uh, what we have now, for example, are foreign language area studies fel fellowships that make it possible for undergraduate and graduate students to acquire skills in lesser taught languages um, these include languages like uh, um, Portuguese, Arabic, Chinese, Japanese, for example, Korean. And so you can have an academic year away or semester, summer uh, term, where you're getting effectively fully funded to pursue study in those languages in the cultures and you know you can do research in those languages too so that's a big part of what we do but the other side of what um at the heart of what we're trying to do i think is recognize that while each unit at the university has a mission mandate to be global at some level uh what we do is actually study global um exchanges right study globalization itself that's not the same thing, for example, as establishing an institutional partnership between Penn State, let's say, and a university in South Africa, 
that's an institutional global link. Or it's not the same as setting up a study abroad program in one part of the world. Those things are happening at the university through uh, Penn State Global. What we do is try to support research that elevates global studies itself. And so um, the reality is that faculty with research agendas in global studies need more resources. It's just a a more resource intensive thing to uh, be doing projects that have that kind of scope. So we offer a lot of research, uh, travel support, seed grant money for faculty to um, launch significant projects and to help Penn State be known, not just as a place that has a lot of global exchange, but that is adding important knowledge about uh, globalization itself. And where do you think the sort of interest to found this come from? Well, I mean, I think, again, if you, if you sort of like so, try to understand where you are as a scholar, what the questions are, the, you always think, what are the questions I like to ask and what are the methods I like to use? And I do sort of work off this idea that global problems require global solutions, but really figuring out that global solution and the methods that you need uh, takes, again, like I said, not just more resources, but it takes time and it takes the capacity typically to, to work outside of your discipline. So, you know, going back to the political satire question. Uh, my next book is going to look at this issue of why is it that satire is on the rise globally? Uh, it's significantly uh, present in just about every political conversation. You don't just have people like Vladimir Zelensky, who is president of Ukraine, who himself was a political satirist. Um, you have uh, folks like Bassem Youssef, who was an Egyptian, called the Egyptian John Stewart, who used to have his show watched by 40 million people, and whose show really helped um, Egyptians and other people in the Arab-speaking world understand major political issues. So one of the questions I like to ask is, why, did, why is that happening, and what can we take away from it? Well, in order to do that, you have to not just be a humanist, right? You have to use social science methods to understand impact, to register these things in different ways. So I work with political scientists. I work with folks in communications. I had a really good working relationship with a neuroscientist at UPenn who um, died recently, but who, who was doing research on sort of the cognitive science of satire So what I'm trying to say is that, you know, that kind of a project, that's the sort of thing that I see very much in line with what the Center for Global Studies wants to support. These sort of really innovative um, uh, projects that take a little more time, take a little more money and get the the academic, uh, you know, um, the scholar outside of their box. Right. And I really want to bring this, uh, the importance of satire back to America. I know you just recently finished writing your uh, book, Trump Was a Joke, Why Satire Makes Sense When Politics Doesn't. Uh, Could you please speak about this sort of obscure era of politics where, I mean, I know earlier we were talking about debate and dialogue, where you said you can't just make things up, where we clearly had someone in office who was doing just that, which was making things up. And so how, in your view, does satire come to uh, sort of rescue our nation from such an obscure state of politics? Well, the argument that I make, 
right, is that the best way to expose someone as a joke is through a joke. So think of it this way. Um, Trump gives a speech, which is filled with uh, just a bunch of exaggerations or BS or flat out lies. BS being, right, BS is when you say something that isn't true, but you're just making something up. And the lie is when you literally know what the thing is that you're covering up, right? So he did both of those. So you have somebody, you have, you have someone like Trump who's, who's out there on the stump does this. Now, picture two scenarios. One scenario is that you tune in to uh, CNN and you get Anderson Cooper running down. Whoa, look what Trump said. He lied about this. Uh, this was made up. That, the other thing. And they go through and they run down the list. Or you could even you know, check. There's a lot of fact checkers. That's a different story that's fun to talk about. Why are there so many fact checkers today? But anyway, so you have CNN do it. But then the second scenario is you tune in to Trevor Noah. And Trevor says, you know, WTF just happened. Like, how is it that the leader of the free world just got away with this? And the way he does it is uh, through uh, expressing like outrage and irony and being clever and, and saying things that somebody like Anderson Cooper cannot say. Because typically what would happen on a show like CNN is Anderson Cooper says he's very flat, like, oh my, oh my, oh my, can you believe that this man just did this? And then I'll have a panel on. And typically on the panel, there's somebody who's going to be defending Trump. So you're, you're still getting the Trump story, for example. Trevor, meanwhile, is going to say something like, well, this isn't surprising at all. This guy is always making stuff up. But what, you know, and then he will say something that helps the public understand the deep impact of the ways in which that speech was misrepresenting uh, reality. And so um, people simply want Trevor Noah more than Anderson Cooper most, right? Um, in, in terms of uh, what that does for you cognitively, but also in the fact that Trevor, weirdly, will have more uh, credibility because he's not buying into the ruse and he's not sort of trying to appear neutral. He knows what's being said is crazy. So, you know, Hassan Minaj, whose show is fabulous, it's really a bummer that that's no longer on Netflix, John Oliver, Samantha B. Folks like this, they come out and they don't for a moment try to suggest that um, we need to see two sides of the story. They're like, no, there's this crazy thing and uh, you know, a rational way of understanding how the world works. And then they do it, though, in this clever and entertaining way so that you're not just bummed out and depressed. You, you feel like you're part of a community. You've had this information presented to you in a way that you can understand and engage with. Um, it's just so far more effective on various levels than, than sort of the efforts to um, approach the Trump administration with what you would think of as neutral reporting. Right. And uh, on, the, like, on the topic of these, you know, the, the very interesting figures you brought up, Trevor Noah and Hassan Minhaj, um, actually a very big fan of both of them. Patriot Act is a great show and Trevor is just hilarious. I love his Netflix special. Um, but 
just moving sort of on this uh, topic of big charismatic figures, um, and I, I want to sort of like start wrapping this up, but this is something that me and uh, Emma were really curious about. Um, you, you said that, uh, well, we're on your website that you were interviewed by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Could you please like let us know a little bit about how that sort of came into fruition? Well, I think you guys maybe know that Neil deGrasse Tyson and Colbert kind of have a bromance, right? <laughs> I actually wasn't aware of that. <laughs> Yeah, I was not aware of that <laughs> yeah. either. Oh, Very yeah. interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Neil deGrasse Tyson, well, first of all, he just works down the street. So he will show up on uh, The Late Show uh, all the time, right? Just come in, sit down, chat. Those guys love each other. So Neil deGrasse Tyson did an, uh, on Star Talk when he had that show, he did an episode on Colbert. And so I was brought in as sort of the satire expert, and I was there with Adam Conover. Uh, so we were on that, you know, hour-long show uh, about, you know, sort of what makes Colbert Colbert and, you know, how important it was that he coined the phrase truthiness or at least made it important, you know, during the George W. years. Uh, it was a really, really fun experience. Uh, real, an exceptional um, experience, I'd have to say. It was really fun to be on that show. Oh my gosh, I'm actually jealous now. That sounds amazing. Um, I mean, if that is not your greatest accomplishment, I mean, if it is, please let me know. But um, what do you think your actual greatest accomplishment would be? <laughs> well, you know, I'm a mom, so my kids are both alive. That feels like a big deal. Now, I mean, you know, it's hard, I think. Um, I don't think I'm done. So I wouldn't want to make, you know, I, I yeah, I wouldn't want to sort of narrow it down. I can say that uh, sometimes when I do something like scroll through my Instagram or, and I look back and I'm like, wait a minute, that, okay, here's when I was hanging out with Michael Moore. And here's when I was on Neil deGrasse Tyson show. And here's when I got to meet Boston Youssef. And here's what, you know, and I do think I've had a very, very um, special set of experiences and moments of success. Um, obviously, hanging out with celebrities is cool. But it's also really, um, I think, one of those things that scholars do is we want to try to leave a mark. Um, but we're not sure if we're going to. I, I like to think that some of the things that I've written um, resonate. I do value my platform on Salon because it's not uncommon that I write a piece there that gets read by you know 250,000 people. That's not the kind of thing most academics get because of the fact that our writing is usually targeted towards a much smaller audience. So um, those have, there have certainly been times when I've met someone and they've said, oh, I read that article you wrote and that really helped me understand something or, you know, things like that. That's important. But there's other parts which aren't about my own personal accomplishments and they're more about, you know, my real sense of pride and honor when I see some of the accomplishments my students have had in their lives. I feel like that enriches mine, um, and and I have you know I have students now, especially because I work in the School of International Affairs. You know they're in embassies across the globe. They're highly successful people doing really amazing work, 
And the thought that I had anything to do with how they sort of approach their lives is, is special to me. And I do have the good fortune of being in touch with a lot of students. And then, of course, like I said, you know, I'm a mom and, you know, most moms will tell you a big part of what makes their life meaningful is, is, you know, hoping that their kids have, um, you know, rich lives. And both of my kids are doing really cool things. So that feels pretty great, too. Well, I mean, throughout this entire conversation, I've learned um, of your sort of eclectic uh, work and it strikes me as you're, that you're someone who's very important for the current period of not only like not only the current de- politically defining moment that we're in, but just socially and generally um, where we're at right now. Um, if there was, and I wanted to ask you if there was one thing that you wanted a reader uh, of your work to come away with, what what would you say that that is? Oh wow, that's. That's a really, really good question. Uh, I think the sort of takeaway that I try to have as a regular habit in my work is that, you know, we don't have to accept the world as it's been presented to us. And we should be asking really interesting questions about um, often these framing devices that were fed that sort of say, suggest to us that, you know, maybe the measure of our success is on this scale or that, you know, blue versus red makes uh, sense or that, uh, for example, you know, um, that, you know, any even in my view, right, that it makes sense for you to sit in a classroom and have a professor talk at you for a semester and then you get, they give you a grade. (laughs) There's a lot of things we should be asking questions about, um, not just for no reason, right, sort of as a sort of uh, anti-authoritarian anarchistic tendency, but because when you sort of take for granted the status quo, and the types of things that you're told are the measures of, you know, how the world works. Uh, we often find that the outcomes are bad, and I think that's what we're seeing, for example, in the climate conversation. It took way too long for, you know, and there were lots of reasons. Um, I'm actually working a lot on this in the in the new satire book because I'm looking at how satirical art and uh, activism. Is, is very important at helping to reframe how people think of the climate crisis. Um, how exactly did we get to a point where a human-made crisis doesn't seem to have a human-made solution? And I really think it's through climate satire that, you, that those folks out there doing that make that visible in a way that hasn't been as visible as it should be. Um, we keep hearing, you know, oh, that's too hard, or oh, no, that can't be done. Um, And you look at something like this and you think, you know, this is decades in the making that the public has been fed this story that fixing this problem is going to be really difficult and really hard on everybody, when in fact that's not true. The reason why that story was told to us was to protect corporate and government interests. And so it takes, you know, someone, I hope, like me or people like me to tell people to 
those aren't the right questions and that's not the right framing system. Uh, we need to, we need to reject the whole structure. The paradigm itself is wrong. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's sort of a through line in my work. Well, I think that's such a beautiful and emancipating idea that you can take paradigm itself and, and reject it. Um, Thank you so much for having this conversation with us today. I know I learned a lot from everything you've had to say, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to do this with us. Well, it was a real pleasure. I always enjoy interacting with the Paternal Fellows Program. You guys are great. I learn a lot from you, and I um, hope to continue the conversations and, and work with you guys again. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into this week's Paternal Fellows Podcast with your hosts, Emma Suzuki and Ladin Suleiman. We hope you enjoyed, and feel free to listen to our past and future recordings on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or our Paterno Fellows website at la.psu.edu. That's all for this episode, and we'll see you on the next one.